recently released docuseries, Quarterback, takes viewers behind the scenes and into the daily lives of three National Football League players. Uh, The series is fascinating along a number of lines, but two emphases serve us here. First, each of the three players is laser-focused on winning the Super Bowl. This is the goal. Second, we witness the intense self-discipline that each man evidences in the pursuit of that one singular goal. It's amazing, but one quarterback spends a lot of money to hire a personal chef to live in home and make all of his meals. Another hires two chiropractors just for himself to get his body in shape in his house. And the third hires a personal trainer who tailors a workout regimen just for him. But he pursues without the rest of the team. And it is a regimen of mind-boggling difficulty and intensity. From when they sleep to what they eat to how they live every moment of their lives, it is dedicated in self-discipline to reach this one ultimate goal. Every turn in the series reveals another level of self-discipline and devotion to pursue that championship. If we begin to see the way the world truly is, the born-again followers of Christ lead far more important lives than any NFL quarterback any head of state, any adventurer, any entertainer, scholar, industry leader, or the like. For us, the goal is not to hoist a trophy, but to enter the eternal presence of the risen Christ. That is our vocation. That is our endeavor. And for us, then, the self-discipline required is not merely physical and temporal, but it is spiritual and eternal. If we could cut away to what is real, we would see ourselves in that light as Christ's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 27 calls us to fix our eyes on the goal of eternal salvation in Christ's presence. Think of it, believer, to enter into the presence of the Lord forever. That's where we are aiming. That's where we're headed. And then calling us to with devout self-discipline that will serve to that end not only for ourselves, but for all who are heading in that direction or will be as we proclaim the gospel of Christ to them. So if NFL quarterbacks live with disciplined devotion to their goal, How much more should we as servants of the eternal King of Kings live for the cause of the gospel? To this point in chapter 9, Paul has explained that he's willing to lay down any right, any freedom that is helpful to proclaim the transforming power of the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners. I don't hold my rights I don't hold on to my freedoms. I lay them down to offend no one in order that I might 
rightly proclaim this truth. In verse 19, now he launches into a defense of his life orientation. And it's quite clear as we read this text before us today that for Paul, the Christian life was no hobby. It wasn't merely a social endeavor that he could take or leave. His life focus was so thoroughly integrated with the mission of Christ, he was willing to sacrifice rights, to sacrifice freedoms and ease and safety to advance the gospel. And I would say then he's a man whose eyes are really open to what's real. Many of the members of the Corinthian church were not tracking with Paul. Not in their understanding, not in the way that they were living their lives. They were selfish and proud and sensual. And I find it amazing as Paul speaks to such a church that he doesn't back away, but heads right into it headlong into this church's perceptions of their own life and how to live it. Paul teaches them that the mission of the risen Christ to call out his church from this dying world, to transform souls, fitting them to spend eternity with him, that mission had not yet captured the Corinthians' imagination and life. But Paul insists that the cause of the gospel commends such a focus. Discipline, sacrifice in the interest of the greatest quest in the universe. To bring us into the presence of the eternal Savior. He thus provides us here then with an example to follow. Chapter 11 and verse 1, he'll say that directly to them as he comes out of this section of these three chapters, 8 through 10 But we find here a challenge to consider two propositions that flow out of these verses before us here today. First of all, in verses 19 through 23, we must learn to sacrifice our freedoms to advance the gospel. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. We'll settle here for just a few moments to understand as this sets up where he's headed. Paul is a slave to no one but Christ. He is beholden to no one else, ultimately. Yet, Paul willingly lays down his rights and his freedoms as an apostle to herald the good news of Christ crucified and risen. I'll make any sacrifice. He subjects his freedoms to what best serves the mission of salvation in Jesus' name. That's the goal. That's the enterprise. And he will lay down his life however necessary to fulfill that direction. And it says to us what? Right out of the gate here, Christians who cling to their resources, who protect their time, who prioritize their ease and security and hate being inconvenienced will do nothing to advance the cause of Christ if they even know Jesus as their Savior at all. Paul calibrated his life to win people to Christ. Notice that word, In verse 19, the word win, that I might win more of them. 
Look down now to verse 20. You see it there two times in verse 20. He uses the same word, when. We find it again at the end of verse 21. And then in verse 22, we find it again at the beginning of the verse. Then he comes at the end of verse 22 to speak of it in terms of that I might save some. I think save is just clinching the, these, uh, the series of wins. Well, what does it mean to win someone? In this context, the verb win involves proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished to save his people from their sins. So win, that verb, involves persuading someone to trust Christ for salvation. It's not a persuasion that's mean-spirited or manipulative in any way, but it is a proclaiming of the truth that then seeks to persuade and to draw others into a response to that truth. So Paul oriented his life as a servant to persuade lost souls to trust Christ as Savior. One beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. That's his life. He looked at his life as one then of servitude to those that he sought to win. He was not their boss. He was not their dictator. He did not manipulate, intimidate, bribe, or in any way take advantage of anyone. Paul sought only to serve by persuading the spiritually blind to turn to Christ for sight. In his next letter to the Corinthians, he says it this way, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. I'm not promoting myself. I'm not the message. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In an honor-shame-based society, the idea of enslaving yourself to others ran headlong against everything in Corinthian society. Everything Corinthians prized. But Paul knew there is only one king of kings, and he laid down his life as a suffering servant to rescue his people from their sin. And so he served that Lord as a servant. Now, in verses 20 through 22, that established there in verse 19, I'm beholden to no one, I am free from all, and yet I lay down my life as a servant in order to win people to Christ. He now, in verses 20 to 22, identifies four distinct groups of people for whom he has laid down his rights and, is, and has sought to win and continues to seek to win. Verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to persuade people to trust Christ. I became like a Jew. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You are a Jew, right? How do you become a Jew? Well, this, I think, indicates that his identity is now in Christ. That his identity is ultimately as a believer in Jesus, not ultimately as a Jew, although he'd never hesitated to express that he was a Jew. But in the sense of how one lives his life and one's identity is not in his Jewish heritage, but now is in Christ. United to Christ, Paul was now a new covenant believer, no longer subject to the dictates of the old covenant. But Paul laid down his freedoms when seeking to win the Jews. 
Verse 20, continuing, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Not sure exactly who that is. All Jews are under the law, first group. So who are these that are under the law that aren't Jews? It very likely would be what was called God-fearing Gentiles who brought themselves under the law of Moses as Gentiles. Or he just may be speaking of Jews at two times here, but continues then to a third category. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here he's clearly speaking of Gentiles. When evangelizing such people, Paul chose not to offend the scruples of those under the law or those outside the law. Now, he, he's careful to say, I'm not, I'm not under the law when I'm relating to such Jewish people or such God-fearing Gentiles. As he says in Romans 10:4. for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So don't misunderstand me there. And then moving to the second idea, don't misunderstand me here either. I'm not a libertarian. I'm not apart from law. But I live under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. Fourth category, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Who are the weak in context? We think of the weak in conscience, but those are believers, Unless we're going to change what the word win means here, and I think there's a reason not to. I think he's talking here about the weak in society. We have considered them previously, have we not? He said, that's who you were, really. Not many mighty, not many that were powerful that Christ reaches, but he reaches the weak. Consider your calling. Not many wise, according to worldly standards, are powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So whoever it was, whatever category we find ourselves in, he was willing to lay down his rights, to sacrifice his freedoms, to humble himself, to come alongside even the weak. Indeed, the weak, in order to win them to Christ. One of the seminaries that I attended, there was a president, the president of one of the larger evangelical seminaries in the world, and a man of letters and great accomplishment and uh, ability of oversight and writing and the like, lecturing throughout the world and well known to many. That he was known to leave his office, don some rather crunchy clothes, nothing too terrible, but just something kind of crunchy, and he'd go to the streets of Chicago, and he'd find homeless people and share the gospel with them, never telling them who he was, just out there on the street. I have a picture in my mind of him, and it's a real picture, uh, that he's sitting on a sidewalk curb with a homeless man sharing the gospel. I become weak to the weak. Whoever it is, wherever I am, that's what Paul is saying. I become whatever is necessary to 
reach those who do not know Christ. Verse 23, he summarizes the point then. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That is, he labors in the gospel to share with those who are born again in their joys and the triumphs of the faith. Now let's note here, Paul never changed the content of the message. He never adjusted the message itself to adapt to whatever fantasies a particular society might want to believe. Nor did Paul ever do anything sinful to win a hearing from the lost. If he were alive today, he would not snort cocaine in order to get close to cocaine addicts, for instance. It's, it's obvious. He wouldn't, on the other hand, adopt postmodern assumptions to gain credibility in the academy either. He spoke the straight-up true gospel of Christ, but he sought in no way to be offensive to those that he was speaking to. And the key is that he laid down his rights and his freedoms in doing so. So I don't think this passage indicates, as so many assume, that he would necessarily copy people's vocabulary or adopt their dress or employ their music or attain their haunts in order to gain a hearing. Some of those efforts might be appropriate given certain circumstances, but really what's at issue here, what he's saying is not simply here's my strategy of proclaiming the gospel as much as he's saying this is yet another example where I'm willing to lay down any right and freedom to proclaim the gospel as freely as possible. To lay aside personal ease, to lay aside personal liberties, to never impede the proclamation of the gospel to anyone. And may we as a church, coming back to this in a few moments, but may we as a church be thinking in such categories at all times, corporately and personally. What can I lay down? What can I sacrifice? How can I adjust? to do nothing to get in the way of the beauty of the gospel as it is sounded to unbelievers. That's not to imitate them and act like them, but it is to be as winsome and faithful as we can be within proper guidelines. So, we learn that we must sacrifice our freedoms to advance the gospel. That's the example that he leaves for the Corinthians, that he leaves for us. And secondly, we must learn to live with self-disciplined focus on eternal life. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He speaks here not to unbelievers, but to regenerate believers. He implores them to run so as to attain the prize. What is the prize? The eternal life freely offered in the gospel to all who trust in Christ as Savior. That's the prize, that eternal life that Christ provides. So he speaks not of earning eternal life, for this we cannot do, but he speaks of calibrating our lives toward entrance into Christ's presence in eternity. Again, if the veil of this life can be rendered, can be rent, and we can see clearly this is where we're headed. 
This is our destiny. This is our future. And it is only appropriate then to calibrate our lives to that future. Run that you may attain that prize. A life focused on entering Christ's eternal presence is not one that stuffs a ticket to heaven in my back pocket as I then go on and live however I please. Paul knows nothing of that kind of theology. It's the kind of life that calibrates itself to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It runs with perseverance to the very end. Paul illustrates this now. He wants to really drive it home. He says, think of it. Every athlete exercises self-control, verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The Isthmian Games were held every other year about 10 miles outside of Corinth, and they were patronized. They were supported by wealthy Corinthians. So they knew this context very well. Athletes would exercise self-control in that each one pledged to devote 10 months to training. During that training, they swore off intercourse, meat, and wine. Not entirely sure how any of that actually helped, but that's what they did, and it showed their devotion at any rate. And if they won an event, they were crowned with a wreath, a wreath made out of some sort of foliage. At this time, it was probably this a, a laurel wreath, and they would put it on the victor's head, Uh, At this time, it was probably a a pine wreath that he speaks of, but whatever the point, it's going to wither up pretty fast. But we are running for an imperishable crown. In consequence, verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. The picture here, running aimlessly, somebody who takes off on the race and then just starts running around. And loses track of where the finish line is. You remember the fable of the tortoise and the hare, right? That both take off on the race, and the hare is really fast and runs out way ahead of the tortoise. But what happens? The hare, the rabbit type thing, <laughs> just gets lost. Starts doing other things, running other places, begins to live aimlessly or run aimlessly, and he loses the race to the very slow tortoise who just stays at it. I don't run aimlessly. My eyes are fixed on the eternal goal, on what is to come. And so I'm calibrating my life to get to that finish line. Do not run aimlessly, believer. He says, and I I don't beat the air in boxing. Boxing was one of the events in these Isthmian games, as was running. And the picture here is a boxer that comes out and just full of energy, swinging wildly, but never landing a punch. A lot of frenetic energy, but really not going anywhere. And that guy undoubtedly gets met by a guy who doesn't throw many punches, just one right in the jaw and knocks him to the ground. Don't box like that. Don't live your life that way, full of frenetic energy that doesn't land anywhere permanent. You might even get a whole collection of withered wreaths 
But the one that matters, the crown that matters, is the one at the end of the race. Live for that. And so I don't run aimlessly. I don't beat the air. But verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I discipline my body. The Greek is a play on words in a sense. I don't flail about landing no punches, but I punch my own body to keep it under control. I, I, what Paul says there is confuses a lot of people. And wow, did we hear really good explanation in our, our adult class this morning of Bible interpretation of how to look at the larger picture. Paul is just using the imagery here and kind of mixing it together as he says, I land punches on myself. It's just a way of saying I'm not beating the air. I'm living with purpose. But we must understand the body is not evil and Paul is not treating the body as evil here. This would be wholly out of sync with Paul's theology. Read Colossians 2 if you're not certain about that. He makes it very clear that beating up the body will never achieve righteousness. That's not the point. But by body here, using that imagery of boxing, by body here, Paul just is saying myself. I discipline myself. I keep my body under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's an interesting twist here that happens. And he's working towards something as he moves into chapter 10 and the conclusion of these three chapters. But the interesting thing that happens here is I lay down every right. I lay down every freedom. I give my whole life over to winning people to Christ. And all along, I need to be concerned that I'm on the right path too. It's never us as believers just telling people what they need to do. It is us also living out that gospel message every day of our lives, lest we are disqualified. That means called out of the race. That means no wreath, no crown, no eternal life. Paul warns us in this verse that we can even proclaim the good news accurately and never reach heaven ourselves. This is no call to depend on ourselves or a claim that good works can save us from God's wrath. Again, this would conflict dramatically with Paul's theology. It is a call, rather, to continue forward in life with a focus on eternity in utter dependence on Christ and his saving grace. We sang of that today, and can it be? It is what he has done. And Paul is not speaking outside of those lines. But if we do not live this way, we will not finish the race. We will be disqualified. This is no reference to losing some reward and getting into heaven by the skin of our teeth, as some would interpret it. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. This is a reference to one whose aimless life actually reveals them to be a lost soul. They don't finish the race. And I've lived long enough to know people, know of people who have led others to Christ and have abandoned the faith and will not be in the presence of Christ through eternity. So we run 
this race to bring all with us that we can, always knowing that I must continue to run with a focus on that final goal. Uh, what does all this mean to us? We're not apostles. We are not frontline missionaries crossing numerous ethnic and national boundaries to declare the gospel to those who have never heard. We have families and jobs and responsibilities, various callings to fulfill. Indeed, we do so for Christ's honor. So our lives are not going to look like the Apostle Paul's life, but this was equally true of the Corinthians. He's not beating the air as he says these things to a church that's calibrated very differently and needs to change. Paul calls this church in Corinth to imitate him, chapter 11, verse 1. And so he calls us to imitate him. It's not going to look like we all become cross-cultural missionaries. By God's grace, some of us do. But that's not the point. We are exhorted that our ultimate love must be Christ and that we must hold nothing back in our pursuit of eternity with him. But what does that look like for spiritual commoners such as each of us here today? It's not fancy. It looks like some things that we may not even think about. It looks like praying for and supporting the worldwide mission of the gospel. Do we know the names of the missionaries with whom we formally partner? Do we have a sense of their essential work, what they're striving to do uniquely in the context of their land? Do we pray for their labors to advance the gospel? This is not a, a question for your private devotion alone, although that's a question to ask, but also corporately. Do we care about the advance of the gospel? Is there some awareness in your mind, in your heart, of what Christ is doing, where he's working, where are the difficult spots, where are the productive spots in the advance of the gospel? If we really care about what Christ is doing, we're going to be watching that. And one way, I just suggest, that can be very helpful to stimulate and encourage an interest in missions is to read biographies. You can do that or watch biographies. There's so much that's been produced that we can watch and understand what Christ is doing in various parts. It's inspiring. It's encouraging. It draws us into the story. It's simple. It's not something profound. But are, is your life locked into the cause of the gospel and its spread? It looks very simple, like participating in VBS, praying earnestly for fruit, even if you're not there to help, are we praying through the week as the gospel's being sounded within this context? And then after, do we continue to pray for fruit? Or participating in the outreach as a teacher or in a support role or inviting neighbors? It looks like simple things like that, calibrating our life in that way. A life of such disciplined devotion in our setting looks like attending church. 
where Christ builds up his body and uses each of us to do so in outward ways, sometimes very quiet ways, behind the scenes as well as all together. But this is the cause of the gospel. It looks like joining a ministry trip or leaving home as a missionary. It looks like crossing the street or connecting to a visitor at church, seeking to enter into gospel conversations, seeking to capture them. It looks like what we're seeing then right here and right now. No life is truly calibrated to the gospel enterprise that is not rooted in self-sacrificing devotion to the local church because it's this people that Jesus has saved. We are really far north in this whole world. And in this north spot, here is a beachhead of the gospel of Christ. So it looks like pouring out time and effort and contributing financial resources to see the work of Christ go forward in the context of one's local church. That by God's grace, each of our lives is dedicated, devoted to, laying down freedoms and ease in order to see this established beachhead stronger. That from here, we may launch out more gospel endeavor to touch more people in more places for Christ. And it certainly looks like standing in the waters of baptism and declaring your faith in and union with the crucified and risen Savior. Are you calibrating your life to the advance of the gospel as the ultimate agenda of your life? Would you have to say honestly, if asked before God to answer, that Christianity is for you a hobby? It's an on-again, off-again interest. Or perhaps you would honestly say it's no interest at all. Paul's life really forces us to take account of where we're focused and how we're living our life. Are you actively calibrating your life to the final entrance into Christ's eternal presence or does spiritual indiscipline characterize your life or mine? Is it evident to the lost that your home is elsewhere? That you are a citizen of another kingdom. That the church is more than a fit it in where I can endeavor. But that the work of the risen Christ in this world is my work. That quest is my quest. I'm a humble plotter. I'm not going to stand next to the apostle Paul. When it comes to the work that I'm doing. But by the grace of God, my life is integrated with the cause of Christ. Can we say that? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord empower us to run with discipline and purpose until we attain the prize of eternal life in Christ's presence. There is no higher calling in this world. And there is no greater prize at the end. Father, may it be 
And may those who now come and stand before us in testimony in these waters, may you draw them uniquely to the calibration of life, to the cause of Christ. May we see it as we witness it. Our our identification with Christ crucified and risen. And as by your grace in the weeks to come, we're able to delve into chapter 10 and to consider our identity in Christ more pointedly. Father, here in this symbol of faith, we see such a beautiful picture that we have died to who we were. That we have died with Christ to our sin and that we now live in him resurrection life. Father, for those who do not have that life, I pray that you draw them to see it displayed here and to know the gospel message that is the foundation of this display. And for those of us who know you as Savior, may we calibrate our lives to the cause of the gospel until we enter into your presence and see you face to face. Help us to calibrate and steer and direct our lives to that end, we pray through Jesus. Amen.